This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to journalist Jacob Siegel and we're going to be talking about something a little bit different for Popular Front this week. We're talking to Jacob about what can only be described as the new American culture war. So we're going to be talking to him about how America's deeply divided nation due to the political situation is leading further and further to violence, chaotic situations and just a very big shift in the culture there. I think it's relevant to Popular Front and I definitely think it's something worth talking about now as well. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash popular front. As a Brit, looking at what's going on in America right now, everywhere, left, right, conservatives, liberals radical liberals all of that you know that that whole mix it seems like absolute chaos like i can't quite get my head around what's going on where so maybe you can explain why is it at this stage you know how did it get like this yeah i think it it feels something like chaos on this side of the pond as well i think you know the most basic way to understand what's going on in america is that these very deep and significant divisions within american society first expressed themselves uh, through the election of 2016. So Trump was a manifestation of these divisions in American society. And then once he was elected, he further entrenched those divisions and made them more volatile, more uh, aggressive, brought the conflict out into the open. So the divisions that uh, Trump uh, was a manifestation of were racial demographic divisions, class divisions, uh, coastal versus, uh, you know, inland American divisions. These whole series of overlapping related cultural, social identities and uh, the election played on all of those, and because the election effectively showed the political establishment, both the Democrat and Republican political establishment, to be really undermined to a a significant degree, uh, both by, I think, issues around kind of campaign financing and also by the internet, social media, online agitation, these older power brokers had been you know, not, they weren't made irrelevant. Uh, they still had some power, but they no longer had gatekeeper power. That's the political parties. That's the the donor class to some extent. So what I'm saying is that there were these deep divisions in American society, and they really erupted in 2016. And ever since then, there's been this kind of ongoing conflict and the most obvious manifestation of that conflict is, um, you know, at the highest level is the Mueller investigation into Russian collusion with the Trump administration on the one hand, and then at the street level, it's these ongoing street battles between Antifa and these various left-wing anti-fascist groups and right-wing paramilitia groups like the Proud Boys or Three Percenters and then also right-wing alt-right or white nationalist groups. 
Um, and so it's playing out at a, a very high level, and it's also playing out that kind of street fighting level, and it, it reflects a very, very long-term kind of long gestating, gest- gestating divisions in American society. Sure, and how serious are those street battles? Because when I first saw it, it would, you know, the Antifa versus fascist and right-wing groups and whatever in the U.S., it's like, you know, we do this all the time in Europe. Like, it looked it looked like, eh, it was like, whatever. But now, I don't, you know, it certainly seems a much bigger deal since Charlottesville, of course, you know, when Heather Hayer was killed. Um, you know, it, it definitely seems now things are getting serious in Portland, Oregon as well. I've been looking there. It seems all the time, every weekend almost, people are clashing on the streets of America because of their political divides. Your framework is absolutely correct. Part of what's been startling to the American political system is that we're just, we're unaccustomed to this. So this kind of street volatility, which has been more of a norm in some European cities, some European countries, you know, America really hasn't experienced this since the late 60s, early 70s. And so it comes as a, a shock to the system in a way that might sometimes exaggerate how consequential it actually is in terms of uh, political violence or destabilizing the system, as it were. You know, that said, um, it's gotten more serious in some ways. So Charlottesville was a real turning point, and there's a, a kind of anecdote that I've I've mentioned in other contexts, but a, a way to see the difference before and after Charlottesville is this. I went to two right-wing versus Antifa counter-protest events in Boston. That's sort of the easiest way to describe them. One was before Charlottesville and one was after. The event that I went to before Charlottesville had something like probably three to four hundred people on the kind of right-wing side, and it was a kind of big tent, alt-light, alt-right, free speech, um, libertarian... Uh, group on one side so by alt-right versus alt-light the distinction I'm making is between you know kind of hardcore ethno-identitarian white nationalists on the one hand and then on the other hand people who might you might just call kind of right-wing nationalists or nativists so there were like three to four hundred of them on the one side and then on the other side there were probably a bit more maybe five five hundred Antifa and left-wing groups on the other side. This was before Charlottesville. And it was very much a kind of like professional activist event, you know, like average people in Boston were staring at this, like, who the hell are these people? You know, it was not something that brought average citizens out of their homes. Now, fast forward, that happened before Charlottesville. Fast forward to after Charlottesville, the same group of kind of young 4chan, right-wing, post-libertarian type kids who organized the first event, organized the second event. This is after Charlottesville. This time, it's heavily policed. There's no more than about, at the absolute most, 150 people on the right-wing side. They are penned off, cordoned off by the police who have them confined to a very small uh, small space for their own safety. And there are probably something like 15,000 counter-protesters. Wow, so just that's a big increase. Enormous, exponentially more people. And that was really a direct consequence of 
what happened in Charlottesville, and I think also uh, President Trump's response to what happened in Charlottesville, which really, you know, his sort of downplaying of the violence and equivocation, saying there are bad people on both sides, I think galvanized a lot of people and it brought them out of their homes. So it got more serious after Charlottesville. And, uh, you know, just one last thing on that. One of the things that you see in terms of the violence here is that, um, you know, recently in Portland, there was a, a incident that was caught, uh, I believe on film, where a left-wing protester with an American flag, so an anti-alt-right protester with an American flag, was attacked by people on the Antifa side. And that relates to uh, what's, you know, philosophically what's called the three-way fight. And this is the idea among some anarchist and left-wing groups that at any given time you have to be fighting both the far-right fascists and the liberal capitalist state. And what ends up happening at some of these events is the fewer far-right fascists are on hand, the more the violence turns against the emblems of the state, the, uh, the spokespeople for the state. Whether that's a Bernie Sanders supporter who showed up with an American flag, the police, Starbucks, whatever it is. So, uh, you know, where there are kind of visible Nazis to fight, the fight is against Nazis. Where there are not visible Nazis to fight, the fight turns against the, the liberal state. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It seems like people are extremely angry and perhaps don't quite know the best way to channel it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think there are definitely a lot of people who are angry, dissatisfied, looking to vent. But then there are other people, uh, particularly, you know, the more ideologically committed activists for whom this idea of the three-way fight is a kind of core principle. And it, it means that you can never lose sight of the fact, you know, if you're somebody who believes in this, it means that you can't lose sight of the fact that your real enemy is not just the the Richard Spencers and the kind of alt-right neo-Nazis. Your real enemy is also, uh, you know, liberal democracy and capitalism. And so um, that sometimes gets buried because in these larger events in particular where... Antifa is one part of uh, a much larger kind of counter protest that involves all different sorts of liberal left wing groups, uh, religious groups. You know, the, the opposition to Nazism in America is pretty broad. You know, it's not like um, Antifa are the only anti Nazi groups in America. So the bigger the event, the bigger the kind of counter protest, the more different groups it brings in the less you see of that kind of ideological, hardline ideological activity. But um, but you see it to some extent at almost all of these events. Mm, yeah, you mentioned 4chan there. I remember I used to go on 4chan years ago when I was like, you know, young teenager. Um, and look at Anonymous and the hacking and all that, you know, and a lot of the Occupy stuff was always put up on there. And it was it was all right, you know. And I remember seeing it like slowly turn into this more kind of Nazi shit. And did the memes, the kind of memes have been around for years, some of them. And I would have never thought they would have sway politically. But I don't know. It seems like they have. What do you, what do you think? Is that is that real? Yeah, no, I, I think it's gotten... Um it's gotten a lot of sway, and I think particularly during the campaign, when Trump was still running for office, 
you know, there was this real synergy between the Trump campaign and the kind of meme factories online. And these new mediums, these new digital mediums have produced a environment where if you make an effective meme, it might get retweeted by the president's son. You know, if you produce a, an effective meme, it can effective, you know, it can sort of cut through the normal barriers between an ordinary citizen and somebody in elected office or somebody in a position of uh, power and influence because if it replicates itself effectively enough online, it might reach that audience. You know, Twitter in particular provides this kind of platform where you might get retweeted by Trump. You know, you have to get seen by him first. Um, but there's a way to kind of directly communicate with these people in positions of power who can then amplify your message. So that was particularly true during the campaign. But, you know, I wrote a, a piece for Vice in uh, early 2017. I think the title was, Is America Ready for Meme Warfare? But it was looking at the way in which this idea of mimetic warfare has actually been taken seriously to some extent by the military establishment. So it's not just 4chan pranksters. And we can talk more about kind of the the 4chan element of memeing and, and the political warfare. But it's something that's also been picked up. There was a, a, a few policy papers in American military journals kind of exploring the possibility of creating meme warfare centers, memetic warfare centers, and how this might be used. So the US military were actually going to formally join the meme war, as it were. Look, there, like, uh, there are a lot of ideas that come out, a lot of different papers produced. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, it's something that was considered. Um, and it's something going back to 2005, there was this... A uh, paper produced by a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps called Memetics, a growth industry in U.S. military operations. And it laid out this kind of uh, organizational hierarchy for how memes could be deployed by a military unit. And that was the Meme Warfare Center. Um, and then after that, years after that, DARPA, uh, which is, you know, the Defense Research Agency, DARPA did a bunch of uh, research into military memetics, kind of furthering this. And there have been uh, a number of kind of points of uh, convergence and synergy between the meme warfare people and elements within the Trump administration. So, you know, it's it's not official policy yet, but it's it's also not just uh, going on on like the B board on Fortune. Sure. And why is it that specifically young American men seem so drawn into the meme culture? And that Because, you know, we have it here in England and in the, in the UK and I, I see see memes, edgy memes, whatever. And it's quite funny, you know, it's a laugh and I, you know, you share it, whatever. But people are not that obsessed with it as they seem over there. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I haven't actually thought about that. It's a really interesting question. Why? Has it become so pronounced in the American political arena? I don't know quite how to answer that. My initial response would be that, 
you know, there are a lot of very online young men in America who are uh, perhaps cut off from other forms of uh, social relationships and who have invested an incredible amount of time into these digital environments online where there's a very high premium placed on the ability to produce an idea, a visual meme style idea that gets picked up. You know, there's like this very uh, kind of Darwinian competition on a board like 4chan where nothing is archived, where your name is not attached to anything, so you can't rely on being a known entity to get your ideas pushed to the top. And a, a meme is this kind of constituent uh, pared down unit of an idea and it's like you know can you make something that people pay attention to yeah it becomes a one-time currency for them basically yeah very much so uh, but if you get good at producing that currency once maybe you'll be good at producing it again and then once they get good at producing it you can float these things into the culture. I think, you know what, Jake, it, it, that actually has a lot to do with it, is there's this relationship that got established between 4chan and the larger popular culture in America that you you saw through stuff like Lolcats and uh, through Project Chanology, where they took on Scientology, where it really made this big impression, I think, on the people on these boards. It showed them that they could have a real influence on the larger culture and gave them the idea of themselves as these kind of, you know, uh, mad geniuses working in these underground laboratories. Now, that gets wrapped up in several layers of irony and, and self-abuse and... Uh, self-grandiosity and, you know, all these sort of different things. But because 4chan, through Rick Rolling and Lolcats and all this other stuff, sort of saw its ideas pumped out into the mainstream, it produced this two-way channel between these meme factories and the broader culture that already existed before the campaign. So it was already in place before the campaign of 2016, and then it just sort of kicked into overdrive. Yeah, I think that's interesting because it, it's kind of true now. Like, if you look at um, Trump's Wombat Son tweeting fucking QAnon conspiracy type stuff, you know, that all started on 4chan. And now you're seeing the president of the most powerful nation on Earth's son tweeting about it, knowing full well, surely, well, I don't know, he, he seems so fucking dumb, but surely, you know, it, it is getting to places in power somehow, whether that's by joke or whatever. That's exactly right. It's um, uh, it's not clear with QAnon exactly, um, you know, it's not clear exactly how it started, but there's some evidence to suggest that certainly from the beginning there were kind of deliberately fake elements injected into it and perhaps... Um, some efforts to kind of cynically take this uh, phony thing and, and pump it out there. But yeah, there's a, a real connection. Yeah, the QAnon stuff is so fucking strange. Like, I watch, um, there is, there's a few that I'll watch. Uh, this one guy, I forget his name, he's got his hair like slicked back and he's growing this massive beard out and he just looks like he's been smoking meth for weeks. Like, his eyes are fucking wired. Um, and he just believes it all. And every time, like one of the kind of, you know, when they say things are going to happen when it doesn't happen, 
he he always has a reason, you know, like he can never be convinced it's not real. It's funny, man. Um, but I watch it because I think, oh, you know, it's, I don't know, it's kind of fun, you know, but it's, I guess it's not, it's actually pretty fucking dark when you think about it. Um, talking about that, the, the, what about, what do you make of the, the black pill, you know, like when, that that's a big kind of community online now where, you know, mostly American teens, I think it is, have been so red pilled, which is, you know, put onto kind of hardline conservatism, whatever. Um, they've been so hard red pill that they end up kind of turning into the nihilist black pill. And it, it's interesting, the whole community, it's like, um, you know, burn down the world, we need a war, you know, we want to die, you know, a brave kind of heroic death. And they kind of mix all this mad stuff in together. You got guys that are like praising Bosnian war heroes and wishing for the fucking world to collapse. And I don't know, it's interesting. I think it shows the real kind of stagnant Western boredom for a lot of these kind of middle american kids um but i don't know what do, you, what do you make of it of the of the black pill yeah i think it was there uh from the beginning probably but was less salient especially during the election than the more standard line kind of right-wing nationalism um and that black pill philosophy which is essentially a continuation of a, a nihilist tradition that stretches throughout European thinking in the, the 20th century, I mean, back to the late 19th century. But it recurs in moments of crisis, I think. Um, you know, this idea, the, this idea of um, the black pill as the revelation of an essential meaninglessness. You know, if the red pill is the idea that there's a kind of progressive conspiracy to conceal the essentially, um, you know, brutal reactionary truth of nature and, and uh, social reality. The black pill is the idea that, you know, there is nothing really worth conserving for a conservative that, um, that far from there being a natural order worth defending as a traditional conservative might argue that the underlying truth is that um you know existence is meaningless meaningless and we are only able to endure the meaninglessness of existence by feeding ourselves a steady diet of illusions and you know it's it might seem strange to have this kind of bleak um existential nihilism wind its way into a, a sort of adolescent internet culture but in another in another way it makes a lot of sense because as the you know as the the kind of foundational um, project of a society comes into question so in America as work and relationships, start to fracture. Wages have been stagnant here for something like four decades now. Uh, through the ups and downs in the economy, there have been certain meta-economic conditions that wage stagnation shows that have made it more difficult for younger people in particular to advance um, financially and, and to feel like they're getting ahead of where their parents were, for instance. You know, dating has become more fraught um, relationships have become harder to form for a lot of people. This kind of breaks down along class lines to some extent, but 
you know, levels of celibacy among both young men and young women are higher. So these are some of the most basic functions in any society, right? In, in a modern society, you're looking for work, you're looking for relationships to form, family formation. As these things start to break apart or, or as they, they start to seem both less essential as they are kind of uh, brought under ideological scrutiny and also harder to attain, then these very fundamental questions about what the meaning of life is come back to the surface. So uh, I think the black pill in some way is a response to serious uh, problems in the American project. And I think there's a, a kind of recurring perennial condition with some of this. That being said, you know, I, I'm, I'm certainly not endorsing it by any means, uh, but I, I think that, you know, I don't know that it's um, that it's able to tell. I don't know that some of the, the black pill sphere of the Internet is always it's always clear uh, where people are taking this stuff seriously as a kind of philosophical outlook about the world and where it provides this mode and style to really just let loose on how corrupt everything is. You know, if you if you feel cheated by the dating world, if you feel, um, you know, if you feel that as a, a young white man in America, all of a sudden you're the minority and people are out to get you um, and you can't even speak about this and, uh, and uh, you know, and you, you take seriously these ideas about um, there being a, a program of white genocide, then the, the black pill provides you a language with which to rage against everything and to rage against the unfairness of existence in this sort of what appears to be a kind of high-minded way. Yeah, one of the things that I found from the kind of black pill community, at least the ones that I've spoken to, they, they want a war, like an actual war, not like, a, you know, meme war or culture war. They want an actual war, or at least they think they do, purely because they're just, you know, oh, this is so, so boring, this kind of monotony of, you know, modern Western existence, all of that carry on. And they, they think they actually want for there to be a war, you know, and that for, you know, it really says something about the society, I think, when, uh, when, when they've got to that point. And I think a lot of what it is, they just feel like they have no outlet and people could argue, oh, fuck them. But this kind of ideas and kind of communities can actually turn into something really dangerous, as we know. And I'm not saying there's fucking black pill terrorists or anything like that, but you know what I mean? It can really manifest itself in a very dark way. And again, I just think that they feel they're kind of making themselves more isolated because they already think they're isolated, you know? That's exactly right. And maybe they want something serious to die for. Maybe they think there's nothing serious to live for. And if there's nothing serious to live for, then they at least want a kind of ecstatic orgy unto death, you know? And the, the idea that this stuff is just a joke is uh, a form of cowardice. Um, you know, if, you're, if you want to be a nihilist dreaming about the apocalypse, I mean, at the very least, have the courage of your convictions. Don't pretend it's a joke, you know? It's obviously, there are people who use this as a joke, but it expresses something very real. 
And the real thing that it expresses, I guess, you know, to come back to what I was saying a moment ago, is not a new sentiment. If you go back and you look at the literature on the cusp of the First World War, and I'm talking about the literature from some of Europe's great writers, D.H. Lawrence, Thomas Mann, they were ecstatic at the prospect of a civilizational war that would produce a cataclysm that could tear Europe apart, you know, a great cleansing fire. Now, Mann spent much of the rest of his life kind of atoning for this wanton lust of violence, but he felt it, and he wasn't the only one. And it's, I think, a kind of response to a feeling of a culture becoming decadent. The irony is that it's a pure symptom of decadence. So the black pill, sometimes you'll find people in this kind of black pill mold who take on a, a kind of moralizing tone and suggest that, you know, the great war that they want to come along is a war that the West deserves to have visited upon itself. The West has become effete and corrupt and a war will cure this. You know, young men like themselves dreaming about wars online are not the antidote to decadence and corruption. They're a sign of decadence and corruption. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it, actually. Um, And how serious do you think all this is? I think you're in a really good place to, to have a clear picture of this. I see it. And after Charlottesville, it kind of... Um, died down a little bit in terms of the the far-right marches and all of that. But now, to me, it looks like something serious is going to happen. I don't know, maybe maybe there'll be a domestic terror attack or I don't know, you know, probably not. But, but what do you think? How serious do you think this is now? Because certainly from across the pond, it looks like a bit of a powder keg. I think it's very serious. I think it's hard to say where it's going to wind up, whether it's with domestic terrorism uh, spiralling out of control or whether it's with uh, a few acts of domestic terrorism that lead to a state crackdown um, and, you know, possibly... I think the more likely scenario, if there was a a spate of domestic terror attacks, would be an overreaction by the state that would empower a kind of, uh, you know, quasi-martial law under Trump that I, I don't think would be good for anybody. But the fractures in American society and what I've referred to before as a kind of low-level, multipolar civil war aren't going to resolve themselves um, by themselves. And neither is the American political process going to naturally take care of this stuff. We've been here before in the 60s and early 70s, and the way this was resolved, um, not only by... uh, you know, acts of, of violence, but the way this was resolved really was by the formation of a new consensus in American society, a new kind of cultural consensus. And the, the phrase culture war comes from this famous speech that right-wing politician Patrick Buchanan gave at the 1992 Republican Convention in America, and he's talking in that speech um, about this a war that he calls a religious war going on in this country, and I'll quote from him, it is a cultural war, as critical to the kind of nation we shall be as the Cold War itself, for this war is for the soul of America. 
that's Buchanan in 92. And, and what he's really talking about, he, he talks about uh, the Clinton-Gore ticket, which eventually won in that year. It was the uh, Democratic ticket that put Bill Clinton in office, that they're the most pro-lesbian and pro-gay ticket in history. This is Buchanan warning about this stuff. But what Buchanan is really signaling in 92 when he talks about this culture war is that the fruits of the the 1960s had produced a new cultural consensus in America. And that cultural consensus took decades to consolidate into a kind of institutional authority. But it was there, and it produced uh, a new regime, a new way of doing things, some good, some bad. But that, in effect, you know, was the resolution to the culture war. The resolution was that one side won. And when one side wins, the war ends, or at least becomes dormant for a while. And then it's on the winning side to prove that um, that their way of doing things works and, and to exert their power and authority in such a way that either accommodates their opponents and, you know, pacifies them or, or that marginalizes them in some way. You know, that's how a ruling power stays in power. In America right now, in 2018, it seems hard to imagine a new cultural consensus forming uh, anytime soon, but it could happen. Um, you know, I don't think it seemed clear in the late 60s that that generation was or the cultural consensus that was sort of brewing then was going to become as powerful and as deeply vested in authority as it is now. So that could happen. The other thing that could happen, though, is just an ongoing balkanization in American society where people sort of retreat into their different regional and uh, institutional and cultural spaces and... um, get further and further away from those with whom they disagree and feel that they don't share values and that the war will then be fought between competing institutions. Well, with that being said, can you sum up for us who is fighting who specifically right now in the, uh, I guess, the new American culture war? Yes, on the street level, um, there are are sort of several different fights going on at the same time. At the street level, which is where, you know, the most active fighting is going on, there are these right-wing groups that span from uh, nationalist groups that you might compare to, like, I guess the EDL might be, uh, Tommy Robinson's group might be a, a kind of point of comparison. Which is the English Defence League, a very right-wing sort of street movement that we had here for quite a while. It's still about, but it's not as big now. Yeah, exactly. So there are groups in America that are sort of comparable to the English Defence League in that... They have, at this point, repudiated racism. They say they're not racist, but they are right-wing nativist groups. Um, And so they're spanning from groups like that to groups that are avowedly, explicitly white nationalist to this other sort of movement we have in America that I don't think you have any uh, analog for in Britain, which is the so-called patriot movement, which are these sort of nativist militia groups, paramilitia groups. And and that's on the one side, um, this right-wing coalition. On the left side, Antifa is the face of it, but there are also other left-wing groups involved in the fighting. Um, But on the street level, it all sort of falls under the umbrella of Antifa for now. 
that's who you see those groups. On a larger level, what the, the easiest way to describe it is there is a basically unbridgeable divide at this point between the Trump coalition and the anti-Trump coalition. So this is not a um, this is not sort of p- politics as usual where, hey, the other side won, but uh, we're going to try to push back against their policies and vote them out of office. This is the side that won is fundamentally illegitimate, both because of its values, because Trump now I'm speaking sort of for the opposition now. Trump is a, uh, you know, crypto white nationalist. He's a stooge of the Russians, you know, every manner of delegitimizing the democratic election of Trump is employed and it's employed by different people for different reasons. And there are different levels of truth and credibility in the different allegations made against the Trump administration. But the bottom line is that democratically elected president, and even that's a controversial claim, right? But a democratically elected president is Uh, There's a a delegitimization campaign, active and ongoing, that's not only led by like hardcore ideologues, it's led by the elected opposition party. You know, the the Russia investigation is very much a way of delegitimizing the sitting president. So that's one side. The other side, the kind of MAGA side, uh, the Trump supporters see this deep state conspiracy that involves the academy the liberal media, the elite cultural institutions, all of whom are involved in trying to repress this populist revolt. And they do that through uh, manipulation of public sentiment and through these kind of shaming campaigns. There's a, an interesting analyst um, in America named John Robb, and he's actually a guy who comes out of war. He's a former... Air Force special operations guy in America. He wrote a a good book called Brave New Future. And uh, he's somebody who studies kind of uh, networks and insurgent networks in particular. And what Rob talks about is these two groups that he refers to as bad boys and mean girls. And the bad boys are the Trump network and the mean girls are the anti-Trump cultural network. And they're involved in these uh, active campaigns against each other. I'm sorry I don't have a better answer for you, Jake, about where this is all going all gonna to wind up. Um, but I think we'll have a better sense of that after the midterm elections here. But it's certainly not going to resolve itself anytime soon. No, no, it's, it's, it's something I find very interesting. And I, I might be wrong, I'm not, I'm not even 30 yet, but I feel like Britain has never been so interested in American politics, at least since, I don't know, the Iraq war. And it seems that everybody's kind of talking about it and looking at it a little bit now. Uh, An interesting note with that is American politics have never looked more European, right? So that's that's the counterpoint. I I wrote an article for Politico in um, early 2017 about exactly this. I forget the title, but if people Google my name, Politico, it's the only thing I ever wrote for them, it'll come up. But the article is about how Donald Trump and the movement he represented, despite appearing to be this American nationalist movement, are actually deeply European in some ways. The alt-right is actually a very European movement in a lot of ways. Um, And the, the... 
point where the alt-right and Donald Trump overlapped is closer to a kind of right-wing statism that you'd find in the National Front, for example, uh, the French uh, National Front, than anything you would have found in uh, Republican politics going back for three decades. Well, yeah, Steve Bannon for a while was trying to kind of caught the um, quote-unquote right-wing populists that are kind of all over Europe right now. And also, you know, he's been seen speaking to George Galloway as well. I mean, that guy's a fucking moron, but there's a kind of alliance there, the anti-liberalism alliance, I guess. But yeah, I, I definitely think the UK has started to take, the right-wing have started to take from America a little bit. So you'll see kind of these you know, like these identity Europa type groups or generation identitaire. Well, I guess that started in France, but there, there is definitely a crossover. These, you know, these kind of fascism for rich kids, that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think there's definitely a lot more communication now, certainly between, you know, for example, even Atomoff and Division had a UK cell um, for a while. It's, it's a lot is going on. Um, but yeah, something I wanted to ask as well. Tell me about Manifesto, your podcast. I love the concept about it. Uh, explain to us what it is. Yeah, it's myself and my co-host is Phil Cly, who's a Marine veteran and a writer. He wrote a book of short stories called Redeployment that won a National Book Award. Phil's one of the best writers alive right now. And uh, he and I... Every week we take, or every episode, it's usually every couple of weeks, we take a manifesto, it could be a political manifesto, an artistic manifesto, and we read it and we talk about it, like, what was this vision for the world? So what did the person who wrote this manifesto want to achieve for the world, and what would it look like if the world was actually remade in the image of this manifesto? And then we also talk about a work of art and we sort of compare and contrast them. So, like, we've done the Humanist Manifesto. We did um, Valerie Solanus, who people might know as the uh, crazy playwright um, who shot Andy Warhol. Yeah, that was my favorite episode. It's the, uh, she's the extreme, extreme radical feminist, right? That's exactly right. The Society for Cutting Up Men. So we took scum... We took Andrea Dworkin, who's another radical feminist, her work, Intercourse. We talked about that, and then we talked about the New Yorker short story, Cat Person, and tried to sort of see what it all meant. Um, and, you know, that's really it. It's like we, we felt like there's enough people um, just expressing their opinions, and we didn't want to um, do that. So we, we wanted to give ourselves the same way you have, you know, this this lens to see the world through. We wanted to give ourselves a lens to see the world. And the lens we chose was people's attempts to remake the world around them through these manifestos or their their ideas for how the world should be remade. And people should definitely listen to Manifesto. I think if you like Popular Front, you're going to like Manifesto. Uh, look it up on iTunes. Um, Jacob, where can people get hold of you if they want to contact you, look at your work, that sort of thing? Uh, just Google my name, Jacob, J-A-C-O-B, Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L, and, uh, you know, you'll find me. Brilliant. Thanks very much, mate. Cheers, Jake. Thanks. That was Jacob Siegel talking about the new American culture war and how the political divisions in the U.S., uh, escalating further, becoming more violent and seemingly spiralling out of control a little bit. 
If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting on the Patreon. You can get bonus episodes, access to the Discord, audio articles, all sorts of stuff is on there and it costs very little. So go to patreon.com slash popularfront. Alternatively, if you don't like Patreon, which is completely understandable, go to popularfront.co slash support. There are many other ways to support us there, including Bitcoin. I know you lot are all flush right now, so do consider supporting us. Thank you very much to the Apple shop. Um, Recently, they fucked one of my phones up and now I lost uh, some Bitcoin as it's on the ride. So thanks very much, Apple, Steve Jobs. Thanks very much. Um, this episode was sponsored by the defensepost.com defense with an s go there to read about various conflicts all around the world reportage you probably won't see elsewhere uh, this episode is also sponsored by umbrella security which is a free open source all-in-one app uh, for digital and physical security it isn't just some bullshit advertisement the guy rory was like jake check this out i think you'll like it because you know obviously i do reporting trips in hostile environments had a look at it and definitely i think it's good um, and it was me who suggested it i said hey sponsor an episode so it's not like someone is just trying to sell you shit trust me i think umbrella security is cool um and you can redistribute it as well for free they're happy with that uh, there is no catch or anything like that so yeah look it up itunes android Um, umbrella security if you want to keep up to date with popular front you can follow me on twitter twitter.com slash jake underscore hanran or the popular front twitter if you can't be bothered with me i don't blame you that is twitter.com slash popular front co which is the same as the website so if you want to see the articles all the popular front episodes all the videos all of that put into one place easily accessible www.popularfront.co depending on which system you're using apparently you have to put the fucking www in i don't know why but there you go um but yeah popularfront.co check that out follow us on instagram that's instagram.com slash popular dot front there's stuff on there that you probably won't see on the twitter um we do kind of now and then we're doing some kind of behind the scenes stuff showing how we build an episode uh sam black uh, son of old put a bit in there showing how he builds a beat so you know there's stuff on there thank you very much to the following people on the patreon without you this would not be possible thank you to adam berg snyder andrew fife axel iverson brian mclaughlin callum ross chad walker dan dunham daniel shearer diana gorvenek elizabeth benicki emiliano Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Joanne Stocker, Joel Tambusi, Kay Hardy Roberts, Kyle N. Payne, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Margaret Bowling, Michael Euler, Noah, Ari from the Discord, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Cubal, Russia Alakidi, Ryan Sandercock, Scartoon Music, Scott Jonesy, Sebastian from the Discord, Surushe Hawazi, Stephen Davila, Teddy, Tom Lochran, Tony Bin, Vida Provost, and Zachary Hinch. Thank you all very much. Also, a big thank you to Anthony Kabarik. Uh, he's been helping us fund trips to do our next documentaries. And if you want to help Popular Front, as I said at the start, please do consider supporting us. Go to patreon.com slash popularfront or popularfront.co slash support. 
music in this episode the intro was by home and the outro was by son of old go to soundcloud.com son of old he's just been put in for the soundcloud partnership thing whatever the fuck it is so uh yeah do check his music out there's gonna be a lot more stuff on there soon <laughs>